tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada and also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. And Mike, this week uh, on this episode, we're very happy to welcome back um, a favorite guest from last year and one of the ATP's strongest veteran players to this day. Yeah, Kevin Anderson's joining us. He's a U.S. Open finalist in 2017, a Wimbledon finalist in 2018, reached a career high of number five in the ATP rankings, six career titles, and he's one heck of a nice guy. Kevin, thanks for joining us again on Matchpoint Canada. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Hope you guys are doing well. Yeah, we, we hope you're doing well uh, as well. And I, I think that's kind of a, probably a, a place to start. Maybe you could uh, just begin by telling us, you know, what, what your 2020 has, has looked like, of course, uh, living through the pandemic and, and spending six, plun- six months away from the tour. How did you spend that time and, and how did you cope uh, being away from the tour for so long? It was obviously been a bit of a crazy year for everybody, to say the least. Um, you know, just from a personal standpoint, it was... Uh, yeah, I had a few, you know, challenges as well. Um, just from a tennis point of view, um, had that uh, knee surgery in 2019. And during training um, in December, I, uh, you know, unfortunately re-injured my knee. Um, at the time, I didn't really know it. I thought it was, you know, going to be okay. And I started the year off ATP Cup Australia and um, I was able to play through it. Um, you know, went up to New York and played there. And um, just afterwards, we sort of realized that this wasn't uh, a long-term, you know, it just wasn't feasible long-term. So I ended up having another knee surgery, and that was r- literally maybe a couple of weeks before Indian Wells, and obviously that's when things started shutting down. Um, so at the time, I, I thought I was going to be ready for the clay season. I, you know, I think we all thought that uh, it would just be a small hiccup, and then obviously... Um, next minute, we sort of realized the severity of everything and uh, ended up being a very long wait at home. Um, you know, we, uh, we, we were in our own quarantine for a while, like a good four weeks. And then we started training again. Didn't know when the tour was going to resume. It kept on being pushed back. Um, so from a, from a tennis standpoint, it was a little tricky to sort of navigate that. Um, we kept on... Uh, just trying to do the best we could in this situation. Um, you know, that was from a tennis standpoint, from a personal standpoint, it was, uh, you know, I think the silver lining was I got to spend a lot of time at home. Um, you know, our daughter was born just a few months before that. So I um, really got to sort of be involved as much as I could with that. Um, and, uh, you know, eventually it was great to finally get back to the court. It took a little bit of time to sort of find my, you know, game a little bit, but I think, especially in the last sort of few tournaments, I've, you know, I feel like I'm on a good track and unfortunately picked up a small muscle strain and nothing serious. Just needed a few days off. Um, but that's, you know, what caused me to pull out the last couple of tournaments. And, uh, and here we are um, a few days off and now getting ready for, uh, you know, hopefully a, a more consistent 2021. Yeah, that's uh, that's great to hear. I, I did want to, follow up because uh as you mentioned it, it felt like uh, you're really turning a corner in your game but uh, you, you did have to uh withdraw towards the end of vienna of course and then pulling out of out of the paris masters so you, you think uh it's going to be kind of a quick turnaround and then probably beginning a training block in front of the next season would that be sort of the plan yeah i mean it was pretty tough i think coming off the match with medvedev was uh you know i've waited a long time and a lot of work to sort of play a match like that i i felt you know, that was much uh, a better showing of, you know, of my game and, you know, my level. And, um, uh, you know, the uh, the next match up against Rublev, who's, you know, been one of the best players of the year. And, you know, unfortunately with that small strain and, you know, that was on Saturday. And uh, my match in Paris was already on Tuesday. And it just, you know, unfortunately didn't have a, enough of a, you know, turnaround time there. So, yeah, it's um, not sort of moving on to the next, chapter we you know australia's still not certain of like the details of you know there's um quarantine periods when we're gonna have to leave so that's a little bit up in the air but australian open is confirmed so it's just a question of when we're going to head down there and then we will uh um you know get going with our uh, uh preparation um i would guess in the next few days here actually 
Have you mentioned that one of the positives of the time off from tennis this year was the uh, family time that you got to spend that sort of crucial time with, with a newborn and, and that's something you wouldn't have had otherwise. How have you found that transition into uh, parenthood and, uh, and what's the plan for traveling with the little one uh, when things do resume? Yeah, it's been great. It's obviously been, um, it's, uh, it's a very um, unique and, you know, fascinating experience and uh, it's, uh, you know, been really exciting. Obviously, there's always some challenges along the way, but I've been very lucky just with the support, um, you know, my wife, you know, has given me and understands the commitments I need on the court. Um, <clears throat> but it's been, a, you know, obviously now it's a very exciting age where she seems to be picking up, you know, new things every day. So um, looking ahead to next year, I mean, you know, I think a goal of, you know, within our family is to, you know, try to spend as much time as we can together, obviously with, um, COVID and the tours restrictions and logistics, um, that makes it a little bit more challenging and a bit of an unknown factor right now. Um, I'm hoping that we'll all be able to travel to Australia, um, but I don't know what exactly that's going to look like. And we're going to have to sort of play it by ear, I guess, in the new year, but, uh, it's been, um, uh, it's been great just, you know, spending, spending this time at home. And I feel like it's been a nice balance between training and, and working on the things I've wanted to work on, but also, um, you know, again, just spending time at home. I got to say, you guys nailed the Halloween costume with your daughter who was dressed up. It was a good as... one, right? Yeah. yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to, you want to tell the listeners? I mean, they can check out, I think it was on Kelsey's Instagram. Yeah. yeah we, um, you know, we, uh, she, Kels dressed her as, um, Billie Jean King and, uh, Lady Katie, our dog, was wearing the, um, you know, the dollar ball, which was the, um, you know, the, the dollar ball that um, all the woman signed. But uh, I, I unfortunately wasn't at home for Halloween. Um, I heard that she wasn't loving the prop. She kept on trying to take off the glasses <laughs> and then the wristbands came off and then the shoes came off. But we did manage to get a couple, uh, a couple of good pictures. Yeah, you guys did a good one. It'll be tough to top that next year. You've set the bar now pretty high for Halloween. Yeah, exactly. Uh, one, one other change for you um, has been uh, taking a step up on the Player Council, going from Vice President to now President on the ATP Player Council yep. with, with Novak's departure. Um, I hope your transition's going smoother than the presidential one we're witnessing right now in the <laughs> yeah. U.S. Um, that being said, there seems like there is a fair bit of work uh, to be done to sort of bring everybody together uh, what are your biggest challenges, do you think, going to be in this role for you? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, just to give some sort of context on the role, it's um, our, you know, the player council roles, um, well, terms are every two years. And our, our term was actually up at Wimbledon this year, but because there was no, you know, Wimbledon, the tour was suspended and there was a lot of moving pieces. It sort of, we decided it made sense for the, current council to continue the term for another six months to see out the rest of the year during that time um novak stepped down um you know i've taken over that role um you know it was a very brief time period it's been for the last few weeks and uh, actually council um nominations have just opened up so we're going to have new elections heading into the new year um but even you know this time that um in the last few weeks has been really important we uh <clears throat> voted on the new international board rep um, Eno Polo is going to be taking over from Dave Edgar starting in the new year. So that was a pretty big, um, well, a very important decision. Um, we've had to discuss a lot right now in terms of scheduling points. Um, so it's really been dominated, you know, unfortunately with the COVID and trying to, trying to, you know, put tennis back in a strong position. Obviously there's a lot of challenges. Tournaments are facing a lot of challenges, um, with their limited, uh, fans allowed on site um you know so nine months ago sort of the goals we had have been put on site a little bit you know there's been a new management that's come in with a very exciting and bold vision that they trying to put into place um i think overriding we continually try to push tennis um to make it uh, a sport that supports as many players as possible um that will always be the goal but of course you know more recently it's sort of swung a little bit and just trying to navigate through these times but it's a really important time it'll be interesting to see which players run for council um you know but i you know i hope the new council will um you know will continue that trend of uh you know pushing through this time and then Sorry, after I'm that um making sure that uh we you know continue to you know to push to make tennis a 
a sport that supports as many players as possible. Yeah, and it's a, it's certainly been a conversation that we've kind of seen ignited even within the pandemic year um, about the idea of a players' union. And we, we've had conversations here with uh, our Canadian player, Bashi Pospisil, about this. Uh, I'm just curious from your vantage point, do you think uh, an idea of a players' union is something that, that could work and, and unite players to maybe achieve better rights, more prize money? And is it something that you think could logistically work with, with both of the tours, ATP and WTA? Yeah, obviously, that's been a very interesting you know, topic. And I think just right off the bat, you know, the first thing to realize is, um, I think as players, it's, we're in a really unique time that a lot of players really spend a lot of time thinking of how to make the sport better for you know all players involved so um, i think that's the goal for everybody involved um, along that process there has been um you know difference of opinion and how to achieve that goal um obviously vasek's been very you know instrumental in the formation of this new players union um i you know just from my standpoint um i i don't think that's the best way to go um while i know that the atp has challenges within a structure i you know, I feel like we've still been able to accomplish a lot and, you know, moving forward, especially with new management, there's going to be a, you know, a long look at, at governance and um, making some pretty significant changes in that moving forwards. Um, as I'm sort of alluded to earlier, uh, with the new management's vision, um, you know, that was unanimously agreed upon by the council earlier on this year. And Unfortunately, with COVID, it's, you know, we're going to have to sort of delay that a little bit. But, you know, if they're able to execute on that plan, obviously, it's one thing just presenting it. You have to be able to execute on it. But I think it will really um, propel tennis to new heights. And, um, you know, I think there's some, ex you know, exciting changes for, uh, for our sport. Um, you know, logistically, I just have a tough time seeing how um, sort of a players union like that fits into our structure, um, you know, for... For better or for worse at this point in time we have you know it's a big business the atp and you know uh you know we do have that 50 percent split between players and tournaments and that is something we have to work through um but you know I, I i believe that the positive change is that all players one can take place within the structure i think most important is you know good communication and uh one thing is certain when you know when everybody's on the same side and working together um, you know, big changes are possible. So it'll be interesting to see what sort of transpires in the next little while, especially since the formation of the players union. Um, I don't think too many players really understand or know what their directive is. Obviously there's a very brief outline, but, um, you know, I don't personally know too much more than that. Um, so we'll have to sort of wait and see, you know, how that evolves. Appreciate your uh, your candor answering that. Um, just just to get back to the tennis, because you, you spoke a, a little bit about your your quality of play in Vienna, and for me, just watching it, it felt like a, a real turning point for your game, and just getting back to some of the level we we saw from you in 2017, 2018, and it actually started with a first round win over Dennis Novak, and in that match, you saved a handful of match points. Um, just as a pro, you know, navigating these difficult matches, how important was it getting through that match? And do, do you feel like that kind of set up the event as a whole for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think a lot of the work and, you know, if when you talk about trusting the process and, um, you know, working each day towards it, that involves sitting with your team and, you know, understanding the things you're trying to work on. So I feel like that you know, has been in place for quite a long time. It just sometimes you need a little bit of a trigger to to find that um, on the match court. And um, I think at high side, obviously, it was, it, was, it was great to be able to save those match points and give myself another opportunity because I feel like, you know, against Karina Buster and then especially at Medvedev, I was able to find some of their tennis that we've been, you know, looking to incorporate, you know, given how I've been playing on the practice court and, um, knowing my, you know, abilities as as a tennis player. So it's, you know, sometimes it's matches like that can can really, um, you know, tr spark, um, you know, that confidence. And um, it's obviously a little bit of a, you know, pity that I, you know, I did pick up that injury and then, you know, that was the end of the season. But I feel like, you know, looking at ahead of next year, there's some, you know, as 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 a team, we've really sat down and identified some key areas of, 
you know, improvements that we feel like we can make for next year. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, really important, even though I'm, you know, sort of towards the later end of my career, we still feel like there's a lot that we want to achieve. There's a lot that I can get, you know, do better on the tennis court. Um, and we are all very, you know, motivated to, uh, to accomplish that and, um, you know, hopefully take that and uh, continue that improvement um, beginning of next year. You mentioned a little bit how you're entering that, that last phase, I guess, of, of a professional tennis career over the next few years. I want to go back for a second and take a look at how you started in tennis and, and your childhood. What drew you to the sport initially and uh, how popular tennis is in, in South Africa as a, as a whole and, and, and what directed you towards tennis of all sports as a kid? Yeah, so I grew up um, in uh, Johannesburg. I have a, um, a younger brother who played tennis as well. And you know, fortunately, we had a, a tennis court um, in, our, uh, well, in our backyard. And it was my dad who introduced you know, both of us to the game and coached us at a very young age. And um, you know, I think you know, he played tennis himself a little bit growing up. And I think the individual nature of tennis really appealed to him where you're um, you, you know, your success and um, accomplishment was a lot, you know, a lot dependent um, or reliant in your own hands. You weren't necessarily at the mercy of selectors, like, you know, in some team sports and um, tennis um, is, is, you know, is really that individual aspect. So we spent a lot of time, um, you know, as kids practicing and playing. And um, I think from a very young age, I really embraced um, that journey and that challenge of, one of one day wanting to become a professional tennis player um tennis is a pretty tough sport in that you really have to uh sacrifice and dedicate yourself at a very young age because um i think just with the skill set involved it's not a sport that you can sort of pick up later in life so it was um, a lot of sacrifice and dedication from a very young age um i think there was a good match between you know how hard my dad pushed us in terms of understanding the work ethic required um, but me really enjoying that process as well and something that I've been able to keep with me is I think one of my uh, strongest attributes um, throughout, uh, throughout my career. I think um, you know, tennis in South Africa is actually, you know, it's a very popular sport. I mean, there's, there's courts everywhere. The social setting is very strong. Um, unfortunately, towards the, you know, in the professional ranks of the game um, in the last sort of while, we haven't had the same amount of players as we did, uh, you know, let's say a couple of decades ago. Um, we do have a strong history of a lot of, you know, top players, both men and women. Um, I think sometimes you go through these cycles and yeah, right now it's, you know, it's been a bit of a, a drought for us. There's only been a handful of players, um, but hopefully things will change. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, you know, I'm pretty excited with, uh, you know, Tennis South Africa's new approach. Um, there's been, you know, new management, um, new uh, new ideas, um, and really focusing on once again and you know increasing the popularity at a grassroots level. And I think that's the most important step. And after that, you know, you can then focus more upon, uh, you know, helping players develop to reach the top of the game. Um, there are some challenges just South Africa being so far from everything. Um, you know, there's the exchange rate, which makes it very expensive. Um, but it is possible. It just, uh, I think right now the goal is to really grow the sport and then, um, you know, hopefully in, uh, in years down the road, we'll, you know, we'll see both men and women reaching, um, the pinnacles of our sport. When I was growing up, there were definitely a couple of South African players I enjoyed watching. One was Amanda Kutzer. Um, yep. and then the other was, was Wayne Ferreira, who I really of enjoyed course, watching. Yeah. And, and I think Wayne, if memory serves correctly, I think he won the, the, Canadian Open back in the day once when it was held in Montreal. I'd have to double check either a winner or a finalist. And uh, I know he oh, won um, two Master Series, so that, um, that, uh, that might well be true. I think so. Um, who were your tennis influences as a kid or as a teenager? What players did you look up to, idolize, uh, you know, want to be like when you were growing up? Yeah, I think I had a few. I think Pete Sampras growing up was probably um, a lot of people's idols, but um, even though I didn't model my game, of his at all I just his um his success I mean his uh um consistency in you know in the successes that he had was um you know very motivating um <clears throat> I really enjoyed watching Juan Carlos Ferreira playing 
Um, and then even though he's, you know, he's my age and, you know, now he's a competitor of mine because he had such good success at a young age. Um, Nadal has been somebody who's, who's um, <clears throat> definitely motivated me to, to, uh, you know, to keep working hard. I mean, you know, he was having, you know, amazing success at already 16, 17. And, you know, I turned pro, you know, a few years later. So it was a bit of an adjustment for me going from, uh, you know, watching him and, um, sort of seeing him in that role to being a competitor, but um, you know, obviously he's been a, a pretty uh, standout um, player in our, you know, not just in our generation, but obviously he'll go down as one of the best in the history of our sport. Yeah, no doubt. It must have uh, been quite the feeling. Obviously, he's on the other side of the court when you play your first uh, Grand Slam final at the U.S. Open. Um, yeah. Just uh, furthermore, um, just just playing now, where it seems like every week we, we see a new face emerge uh, on the tour, making a deep run at an event, whether it's uh, Ugo Umber just recently at the Paris Masters. So many young, great players like Yannick Sinner rising, and then some of our Canadians who we love, and Felix Ojeda-Aliassime and Denis Shapovalov having great success. I mean, you, you've played on the tour now for 13 seasons. Do you think this is the deepest the tour has ever been in terms of quality? Yeah, it's it's I mean, it's a really interesting time. Um, you know, there was for for quite some time there that the you know average age was getting a year old each year. It was amazing to see players continually uh, playing some of their best tennis well into their thirties. And uh, I think you've seen this um, new generation coming up and uh, and and really establishing themselves. Um, obviously, it's it's uh, not quite there yet in terms of at the slam level. Um, we saw Dominic team breakthrough at US Open. I mean, he is younger. I wouldn't say he's 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 a young player, but um I think there's an exciting batch of players. Obviously you mentioned two of the most exciting, you know, from Canada and Felix and Dennis. I mean those, you know, players I think will be competing for Sam titles and I'm sure just a few years down the road. Um, but there's a pretty interesting balance right now between this young group of players and obviously some players who you know have been on tour for you know a number of years now. We appreciate the Canadian shout out there, Kevin. That, <laughs> yeah. that guarantees you future you know spots on our show. Um, <laughs> That's right. Okay, we got all the easy questions out of the way for you, Kevin, and we warned right. you ahead of time before we started recording that there would be a a little rapid fire to uh, finish things okay. off here with some fun questions. So this is where it gets challenging. Good luck. I'll start off Thank and me, me and Ben will trade one for one. So your favorite tennis shot? I have to go with myself. I figured that would be the answer. Um, yeah. your, your favorite food? My favorite food uh, would be sushi. Hmm. Nice. Favorite, uh, favorite show to binge watch? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, there's been so many. Um, I'd say historically one of my favorites was uh, a house, um, but that's been a little bit older. Um, new shows, actually, I really like The Mandalorian, and I think the new season's just come out, so I might actually start binge watching that one now. That, that's a um, good one. My kids love that one. Oh yeah. Well, I, I know you're you're early on in the journey, but uh, hardest thing about being a parent. Hardest thing about being a parent, um, probably at times the uh, the the need to watch them twenty four seven, especially now when um, they're walking and getting their hands into everything. Best part about being six foot eight. Best part about being six foot eight. Uh, well, it helps to serve. <laughs> um, but. It helps to surf, and I guess it gives me some uses around the house. I'm not, I'm not that great, but um, at least um, I can say that I pull my weight sometimes. Well, I'll ask you, what's the worst part of being six foot eight? I have to wonder if it has to do with travel, to be honest. Yeah, probably, probably the travel's not easy, and uh, get asked a lot of times how t you know uh, the typical sort of geez, you tall, how tall are you, and you must be a basketball player. <laughs> um, that part's pretty annoying. <laughs> Okay. Sorry, I think we've lost uh, Mike for a second. I'll I'll ask the uh, follow up though um, on our next rapid fire. If you could meet uh, any one athlete in the world, who would it be? 
Um, actually, just had that question. Uh, some of my favorites. Um, I think right now it would have to be uh, Michael Jordan, especially after watching the uh, the mini series, The Last Dance, came out of me. It was just fascinating, and uh, um, somebody you know like that would be you know if he was up to answering a lot of questions would be fascinating. But um, I mean, he's been a pretty iconic athlete, and you know, in our generation. Yeah, yeah, that series was was unbelievable. Tournament that you missed the most this past year, Kevin. Uh, tournament I miss most would be Wimbledon. And if you could uh, pinpoint it, best moment of uh, your career so far? Best moment? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a couple moments, I think, from, uh, um, you know, the two slam finals that I've reached, I think both were, you know, were really special. I think you know, if I do, if you're going to press me um, at Wimbledon, either, you know, beating Federer or my really long match against um, Isner in the semis was, uh, you know, pretty, you know, pretty great memory for me. Okay, we'll end with this one. This is important. Favorite thing about Canada? Favorite thing about Canada? Um, you know, when we've been, I've... I don't know if we just got lucky, but uh, we've been to some really great restaurants up in Canada. I don't know if that's like a known thing there, but uh, I don't know. I just feel like the uh, sort of local restaurants we've been to have been really fantastic and it's something we definitely look forward to. Um, the one thing I haven't done, which I really want to, is the, uh, um, I think there's, some, there's a pretty big jazz festival up in Canada, isn't there? Montreal's got a really big jazz fest, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if it's at the right timing, but um, I'm pretty into music, and uh, a lot of people who I really like enjoy playing have, you know, have been part of that. So hopefully I'll be able to check that out one day. I think that's a bit before Rogers Cup. You might have to come do a Canadian training block after maybe, Wimbledon before, maybe, yeah. <laughs> before that tournament um, begins. Yeah, and uh, obviously we you know, go to Toronto and Montreal, which are amazing cities. Um, I really have seen a lot of cool pictures, you know, in terms of like the nature of Canada. So I think uh, uh, once, you know, tennis is done and a bit more travel flexibility, I might have to hit you guys up and give, give me some good travel spots that I can go visit throughout the country. Totally. We can do that. <laughs> Kevin, uh, thanks so much uh, for, for joining us Anytime. again on, on, on Matchpoint Canada. We, uh, we really appreciate your time and candor as always. All right. Thanks, guys. There you have it, Kevin Anderson. Uh, great to speak with him again. And I should mention, uh, from his run at the Vienna Open actually a couple weeks ago, getting to that semifinals, he's now back inside the top 80 of the ATP rankings. So so slowly building himself back up, I think, in the rankings. And, you know, I, I spoke with a friend of mine actually the other week mentioning Kevin Anderson. And uh, the friend said, you know, when he's playing his best, he's like a top 10 player. And it's funny because... You know, before his success in 2017 and 2018, uh, I don't know if I, I would have seen him cracking that top 10. And then, you know, he proved us wrong and, 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 and then something by making those two slam finals. And now I almost feel like, yeah, it's weird not seeing him in the top 10 or 15 players in the world and seeing his ranking, you know, slipped so far down because of the injury. So, um, you know, I, I consider him a top 10, top 20 guy, top 20 guy for sure. And it's always great when you get someone like that on the podcast. So it's, uh, it's fantastic to chat with him once again. And I felt like we kind of built on that first interview from a year and a half ago, getting to know him a little bit better and, and having him share a little insight into his past and, and how he got into the sport. And, uh, and you could tell by his answers that were you know, pretty, uh, pretty lengthy and pretty, pretty detailed that uh, he certainly cares about how tennis is, is developing in his country. And um, I've always felt like his heart's in the right place on, on many issues. Yeah, certainly. And uh, just thinking of all of his, his injury issues over the past couple of years, I mean, it's not something that's plagued him throughout his career, but it had me at, at times, in a way, thinking of Milos Raonic, um, a, a Canadian player who, who we've had reach a Grand Slam final. Of course, Kevin Anderson's been to two, a player who we feel when he's playing his best tennis, certainly in the top 15, top 10 conversation, even still. And just to kind of segue over to the Paris Masters, where unfortunately Kevin Anderson had to withdraw, we saw Milos back at it healthy again. And uh, when we see him healthy, we see some great tennis and uh, producing a quality semifinals run at a Masters 1000. So, so positive news, I, I think, for one of our veteran players uh, at the tail end of the season here.
Yeah, I mean, hey, if you want to talk about Milos for a bit, that's good with me because he's back up to number 14 in the rankings. So he's certainly come a long way this year because, you know, a year ago at this time, he was just outside of the top 30. So he's taken that ranking and, and more than cut it in half. Um, he's turning 30 in December, which um, I still can't really believe that he's at that stage. The him and Vashik are, uh, you know, these, these veteran players now. Uh, neither of them really look like veterans still. They both kind of have the baby kind of face there going yep. for them but they are definitely the veterans in our country and uh, in terms of succession planning and we'll talk about the the younger group later we've certainly got a nice sort of you know group ready to transition uh when Milos and, and Vashik are, are done so Tennis Canada you know in good hands on the men's side for sure right now but uh he's gone 23 and 9 in 2020 and since he's come back and since we spoke with them just before the resumption of tennis He's made the finals in Cincinnati, of course, semifinals right. in St. Petersburg, and, and now, of course, the semifinals in, in Paris as well. It's quite a season he's put together, given the limited amount of time that, um, you know, tennis has had on the, on the stage in, in 2020. And I guess it kind of shows you, again, when he's healthy, what he can do. And if only he could maintain his health later in the year, maybe we'd have more years where he has this kind of late season success as well. Yeah, you, you just certainly feel just when I'm watching him, he looks like a player who belongs in quarterfinals, semifinals of tournaments consistently and proving that obviously at this Paris Masters. Uh, his first three matches goes through Badene, Pierre Huker-Bear, and then Marcus Giron. Those three matches didn't have his serve broken once. And I, I believe in one of the wins, didn't even face a break point. So you see how dominant that was. And of course, finally running into Daniil Medvedev, um, losing in the semifinals. Ugo Ambera should talk about that win just briefly. Uh, epic three-set win over this rising uh, young French star who's just cracked it, broken into the top 30. But Raonich was down 5-1 in this third-set tiebreak at one point saving two match points, including a 30-shot epic rally where we don't normally rely on Milos Raonic to grind out this long point. You'd think if it's a 30-shot rally, it's probably not going to go in his direction. But he was showing great mobility around the court digging out this very difficult point and goes on to get the win. And then it finally runs into Dino Medvedev, of course, won the title. So terrific tournament for Milos. And uh, we can segue into talk about Daniil Medvedev because a player who towards the end of 2019, summer of 2019, was absolutely one of the best players in the world. And this year, strangely enough, we hadn't really seen much from him since the resumption of tennis. And uh, I know he was hungry to you know, get a big title and, and he's done so. He was so good back in that summer of 2019. Like it was so insane what he was doing on the hardcore swing there. And uh, it reminds me of, you know, and this is an odd sort of comparison, but when Bianca Andreescu said she forgot how to lose there last fall, yeah. it was kind of like that for him a year ago. I'm sure he That's kind of right. forgot, I mean, even though he had a couple of final losses, but he was on such a tear. He was just, you know, really that momentum was almost unstoppable and, and it didn't continue into this year, but he's, he's gotten back on track here to, to close out 2020 and him along with Hachinov and, uh, and Rublev, who's been absolutely oh, yeah. lights out. My goodness, those three give Russia so much, um, so much talent on the men's side of thing. And they're one of two countries to have three players in the top 20 on the men's side of things. And the other one isn't Canada, although we're very close as Felix is just outside the top 20 right now, but Russia and Spain. Uh, but when you look at average age, obviously Russia, uh, you know, has many good years ahead of them. Um, uh, compared to Spain, a little bit older there, those three. Um, and, and I think Canada and Russia, my goodness, we're going to see some great stuff on the male side of, of both of these nations and uh, some potential Davis Cup or ATP Cup uh, finals, I think, are almost inevitable between these two nations given the age of our, our young players and, uh, and, and how many years they have ahead of them, which will be great to watch. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I was having flashbacks to Davis Cup 2019, where Canada and Russia did play, I believe it was in the, the semifinals, and you had those parallels of, it was Hachinov and Rublev completely carrying the torch, I think playing virtually every match for Russia through that entire week, you know, winning everything, and then we had the other side of the coin, Denis Shapovalov and Vashik Pospisil getting it done all by themselves, uh, essentially, until that final. And how, and you know, we spoke about how dangerous would Canada be with Milos Raonic in the conversation because he didn't play last year. How dangerous is Russia with Hachinov, Rublev, and add in Danil Medvedev, who has just leapfrogged Roger Federer, by the way, for number four in the world. So Federer 
push back down to number five. Um, so that that is going to be such a serious threat. And all three of those players are still early 20s and, and getting better and better each year. Yeah, it's going to be super fun to watch. And, and I'm excited about those Russians as well. Uh, you know, they've got differences between those three players for sure. And, and lately, who hasn't been captivated by how well Rublev's been playing? And, and what does he have, five or six titles this year or something along yeah, those five. lines? Yeah. Um, and again, given that it's been such a shortened season, um, that's, that's pretty incredible to say that he's, he's had that much hardware to uh, bring home. And, uh, you know, we brought some hardware home this week, too. Uh, on the Canadian side, and it, it wasn't expected, of course, but uh, Felix Auger-Aliassime gets uh, an ATP title, and uh, who knew it'd be in, in doubles. No, quite a quite a pairing that uh, Felix uh, teamed up with uh, Hubert Hercatch, who's another one of these talented young players uh, from Poland, and he's, uh, you know, drifted inside the top 30. I, I noticed him actually the other year because he played Wimbledon and had, I want to say, a second or third round match against Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic, of course, went on to win the Wimbledon title in 2019. Uh, don't remind Roger Federer fans of that final. Um, but early on, nobody really tested Novak Djokovic until he had, I believe, a third round match against Hubert Hurkacz, who pushed him four sets. And I was watching and I was just marveling at uh, his agility on court for someone who is a bigger frame, has this great wingspan, a dangerous, dangerous forehand, and a lot of firepower. And uh, I, I thought Hercatch is a, a, certainly a player to watch. And him and Felix, uh, just a great tandem this week. And it's not like they were, you know, getting through easy teams. This is a Masters 1000. So all the best doubles teams were there. They beat Matty Pavic and Bruno Soros in the final. They saved match points in that final. Um, six, seven, seven, six, and then just rolled in the super breaker 10 to two. Um, so we would not have forecast a first career ATP title for Felix coming in doubles, but uh, we'll happily take that. Yeah, I'm super happy for Felix because it's got to be weighing on him that he's 0-6 in singles finals yeah. up to this point in his young career. And, and he made another final um, you know, recently, and it, it didn't go his way, of course, against uh, Zverev. And he's gone 6-7 and seven since his U.S. Open loss to Dominic Team, a loss that... I think probably still stings because of the way how those last two sets went down 6-1, 6-1. And so to have a, a positive towards the end of the year here, uh, even if it's in doubles, is, uh, is really good for him. And uh, I, I would be, I'd be more surprised if he didn't get that first singles title in 2021 than, than if he did. I'd, I'd be kind of, I'm not going to say shocked because he is still young, but I'd be surprised if it didn't come in the next 12 months. Yeah, I'd, uh, I'd certainly agree with you there. And uh, keep in mind, I'm sure he'll be playing a packed schedule um, with some ATP 250 opportunities. And uh, we should note, um, as the Sofia Open is now underway, this is an event where Denis Shapovalov is the top seed and Felix Auger-Aliassime is the second seed. Um, a little more on the Paris Masters that Daniil Medvedev defeating Sasha Zverev in the finals. Zverev took out Nadal in the semifinals and um, finally had a great stretch of uh wins um and that streak finally ending in the final but um right now Sasha's Zverev I, I don't think a lot of Twitter and a, a lot of uh, tennis fans are really discussing his tennis um there were very serious allegations of abuse against him levied by his ex-girlfriend just the other week named Olya Sharapova uh, first that's surfaced on Instagram and uh then we had a, a full-length piece in Racket Magazine um, where she has corroborating stories of, of this abuse that um, allegedly took place at the 2019 U.S. Open. And we really haven't heard anything from the ATP on this. And, uh, you know, tennis isn't like, I, I guess, the NBA or the NFL or some of these big leagues where they actually have policies in place in terms of domestic violence, abuse, and we see suspensions levied at players. Now, there are no charges against Sasha Zverev right now, but you would think it would be contingent upon the ATP to maybe say something and, and not kind of sweep this under the rug or act like it's, it's not happening. Yeah, it's a big disappointment to see the ATP hasn't uttered anything on the matter. Uh, and yet it doesn't surprise me because I feel like they have been silent on other big issues in the past off the court. And I don't know if that's them just trying to not bring any negative attention to the to the product, to the tour, which, you know, you, you can't agree with that. You can't, you know, there's, you got to expect bigger from a, a body and organization like the ATP. And it's in their code of conduct that it's an obligation for ATP players and related persons to 
as they say, refrain from engaging in conduct contrary to the integrity of the game of tennis. Well, you know, this certainly seems to be contrary to the integrity of, of any sport. And, um, you know, it's, it's in the early stages of, um, you know, I don't want to say fact finding, but learning about what's happened. And Ben Rothenberg, uh, got to give him credit for, for really getting into the details of what, uh, what allegedly happened. And, uh, I mean, it was a chilling, um, you know, read to go through that article that was so thorough and, uh, and had so many layers of, of proof and, and detail from um, uh, Sharapova's side of, uh, of what transpired years ago. And, um, and, and I got to say, after you read that, the response needs to be a little bit more than, than what we've heard, which is zero from the ATP and from Sasha Zverev, a, a real paltry and, and underwhelming um, statement about how, well, you know, we, we dated years ago and as if that has anything to do with it, the length of time that's transpired. Right. And, and so I feel like, you know, the ATP at the very least could have said, we're looking into the matter, we're doing some investigating and, and a statement about how we, we support victims of abuse and how we take this, you know, very seriously. And that's, you know, it's, it's, it's just been sorely lacking and, uh, and will there be a statement from them or not? I'm not sure. And, and, and what will happen next? Because it, it seems like Sharapova is not looking to press charges or, or take the matter further, but wanted to, you know, share what had happened. And, um, and so far the uh, response from Zverev in the tour has been, um, you know, kind of a disgrace, I would say. Yeah, certainly a, a big disappointment for me. I, I should note, as you said, uh, because Olya Sharipova has not pressed charges, I don't think the ATP is in a place where they can be levying any kind of suspension uh, towards Alexander Zverev because um, even with the corroborating evidence maybe that we've read in the article, I don't think they're in a place to uh, suspend. But as you said, just making some type of statement, suggestion of the fact that they don't condone any type of domestic abuse or otherwise, maybe a donation um, supporting uh, victims of violence, something. But uh, as, as we've detailed, they've been silent. And I just felt like throughout the whole week at the Paris Masters, it was the kind of the elephant in the room. Sasha's very was going along winning these matches and uh, ATP and tennis teams were sharing these victories of other players and almost ignoring the fact that Zverev was moving along in the tournament. Eventually, he's all the way in the final and beat, beats Rafael Nadal. You simply can't ignore that. And uh, it, it's certainly the talk right now on tennis Twitter. And uh, it, it's going to take it. It's going to be a major hit on, on Sasha Zverev's reputation. And, and right now, we don't really have a gauge on how all tennis fans feel about it because, of course, the Paris Masters was played without fans. But uh, you wonder, he's still very young in his career. And I don't want to talk so much about trying to rehab his image. I, I have kind it's of not, a low it's image not really a, right now. So, yeah, yeah, rehabbing the image is not really, you know, like I don't really care, you know, about his right. image or the, the hit his image is going to take, and, and nor do you. But it's, uh, yeah, he's going to have to, um, and he's going to have to face this um, better than he has so far. And uh, I think I think we're going to need a lot more than just one sort of stock statement uh, on Twitter and Instagram. And, and, um, and maybe he can't bounce back from this because this is the type of thing that, uh, you know, if it is uh, certainly true, it's uh, it's beyond damaging the reputation. It's it's almost unrecoverable because in, in my eyes, I mean, if if this was a relative of mine or a friend of mine who had to suffer this, someone that I knew. Uh, there'd be no forgiveness coming from me. And uh, I would imagine that many people probably look at this in the, in the same light. Yep. Yep. Certainly. Um, we'll move on. As I said, uh, Sophia open our top two seeds, number one seed, Denis Shapovalov there. And the second seed, Felix Ojeali-Assim. And, you know, we look back to what Dennis did at the U S open makes uh, an incredible run to the quarterfinals, tough five set loss to Pablo Carreño Busta there. And uh, we're talking about such great momentum and how he's, he's playing in 2020. And now it looks like he's kind of hit another snag over the past few weeks. He lost early in Vienna to a wild card player had a loss to veteran Gilles Simo in Cologne. So I'm really searching for this tournament, uh, a lesser tournament, an ATP 250, where we don't have like heavyweight names in the field. Dennis, to, to make some inroads and, and start winning matches again. Yeah, it's the first time that Canada's had the top two seeds in an ATP tournament, I believe, and uh, it certainly won't be the last. Uh, I think with Dennis, he's still striving for that uh, consistency, but he has been far more consistent, I feel like, this year than he has in the past, because in the past, there'd been lulls of, you know, not just weeks, but months 
where he kind of disappeared and, and couldn't string together, you know, the wins. But semifinal in Rome and St. Petersburg, falling to Schwartzman and, and Rublev, both of those going three sets. Um, and obviously, as we've mentioned and, and enjoyed his U.S. Open quarterfinal run, uh, I, I'd say Dennis has done just fine since coming back to tennis. And I think that while he's not as consistent as we'd all like to see in a perfect world, um, he's definitely improved in that regard. And there's certainly been progress in, in 2020 for him. And he's, he's still only, what, 21 years old. So uh, uh, he's building year after year. And if you look at his resume, you know, from 2017 onwards, uh, pretty darn impressive, uh, I'd have to say. Yeah, certainly a lot of players would take that. As for Felix, coming off his first ATP career win in doubles, and now I'm sure he'll be seeking a bounce back in singles. Should mention as well, Vashik Pospisil is in this field and already picked up a win over uh, Ilya Marchenko as well. And Vashik Pospisil, you know, again, looking at rankings from a year ago, he was 149 a year ago. He's up to 74 right now. So he as well has taken his ranking, cut it in half and certainly trending upwards if there was a player you know if there was a, a bunch of players i'd you know put money on in terms of what i expect from them to to carry forward to next season he'd certainly be one that i'd bank on to continue that upward movement and and i think we'll see him in the top 50 next year the way he's going for sure yeah yeah i i'd certainly agree with you there um it's odd we only have one WTA event, official event right now on our calendar. It's happening in Linz. And last year, Linz, it wouldn't normally be on my radar as a big tournament, but it's now forever just going to be familiar and uh, memorable because it's the site where Coco Goff won her first career title uh, last year. And, uh, you know, she's not back to defend it. Um, but when you have like a young teenage phenom pick up their first career title, you tend to remember where it happened. Yeah, and she did so as a lucky loser as well, which is kind of a crazy story to get bounced from qualities only to find your way back into the main draw and then make the most of it and then some by capturing the title in your first ever title. I mean, that's a place that's going to be special for her for the rest of her career, regardless of uh, you know when she plays there again. Clearly, because of COVID and, and traveling between North America and Europe, I'm sure that's the, the reason we're not seeing her there to defend it, unfortunately. Um, but she's got so many years ahead of her to play that event and any other that she chooses. Uh, we'll have to deal with uh, Sabalenka and Elise Mertens as the top two seeds. And uh, no Canadians in the singles draw, but if you look at doubles, Gabby Dabrowski is there as part of the number two seeded uh, doubles team, along with Vera Zvonareva, who... I'm not sure if she's played with her before in the past, but I think this is certainly the first time in, in 2020 that that duo has uh, come together. And, you know, with Gabby, she's played with so many different partners and seems to bring out the best in them. That uh, wouldn't surprise me if they had a deep run here, despite not having a lot of familiarity with each other on the same side of the net. No, not at all. Now teaming up with a, a very veteran player of the tour and a player who uh, just earlier, um, it was Leila Fernandez who won her first ever Grand Slam match, uh, defeating Verzvana Reva first round of the U.S. Open. Um, so that was kind of a milestone moment for Layla defeating Veris Vonareva, who is uh, teaming up with Gabby this week. Um, and as, as you mentioned, we don't have Canadians in the singles field. And uh, at this stage, I, I believe their seasons are wrapped up. Layla Fernandez confirmed as much uh, to me. And I, I don't think we're going to see Jeannie Bouchard on the court um, in an official tournament, that is, uh, for the remainder of 2020 either. Yeah, and for both those players, you know, there's there's no need, really. They've done enough, I feel like, to close out 2020 on a, a positive note. And uh, I think, really, when you look at all the Canadians on the men's and the women's side, they've they've just done such a great job since coming back from the pandemic. So kudos to them and their their training teams and uh, and their plans because it's clearly worked out. And I'm, I've never been as excited as I'm going to be for 2021 in terms of the number of Canadian players that I'm excited to see. And not just because we host this Canadian podcast for Tennis Canada, but uh, just because there's so many of them that seem to be playing their, their best tennis in some time, or in many cases, the best tennis of, of their careers. So, uh, you know, kudos to the Tennis Canada crew. And uh, in terms of Tennis Canada, there's, uh, I know some news that that we both want to share and that Tennis Canada would like to share with, with listeners and their fans and supporters. Yes, yes, and, and this is important. Um, just uh, obviously, given what we've gone through in a difficult 2020, um, Tennis Canada needs your help to rebuild a tennis nation. The Federation's been hit hard following the financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. That includes a $17 million loss after the postponement of the 2020 Rogers Cup presented by National Bank, uh, both events in Toronto and Montreal. 
Uh, so you can give now and have your donation personally matched dollar for dollar up to fifty thousand dollars each by Canadian tennis stars Bianca Andreescu, Felix Oje Aliassime, and co-CEO of Spin Master Anton Raby. All the donations will go towards growing the game across our country and rebuilding Tennis Canada's grassroots and high performance programs. Just have to go to tenniscanada.com slash donate to make your donation. And you can spread the word online as well using the hashtag tennis nation. So there you go. Um, please contribute if you can. And as I said, use the hashtag tennis nation. Obviously um, it, you know, we we've been feeling the brunt of this all all of our friends over at tennis canada we've gone through such a such a difficult year but uh i i really think we're we're still on the upswing just given all our great canadian stars that we have uh, to build the game yeah and you hope that they can capitalize on it that uh, that covid will cooperate and i mean there has been some news this week that it looks like we're getting closer to a vaccine and for Tennis Canada, it's just so key and so essential that the Rogers Cup is able to, you know, operate and, and thrive as it usually does. They rely so badly on, you know, those ticket sales and those fans coming in through the gate. And uh, that couldn't happen this year. And, and we're hopeful and, and uh, fingers crossed that it can happen in 2021. But in the meantime, to help uh, put things back together, um, you know, you said it all right there, Ben. So if you're able to donate and have it matched by Bianca and Felix, which is pretty special that those two young players are also taking up the cause, then by all means, uh, go ahead and, and it would be greatly appreciated. Yes, and uh, we greatly appreciate Kevin Anderson taking the time with us on our latest episode of Matchpoint Canada. Give us a like, retweet, share, and uh, we will talk to you next time.